Chapter 18 of The Fighting Shepherdess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart. Chapter 18 A Warning. I can't hold them ewes and lambs on de bed ground no more. They know it's time to be getting up to their summer ranges. Nobody has to tell a sheep when to move on. The Swede swirled his little round hat on his equally round little head and winked rapidly as he gave vent to his indignant protest. Kate looked at him in silence for a moment and then said in a sudden decision, you can start tomorrow, Olson. The early summer was fulfilling the promise of a hot, rainless spring. Bitter Creek was drying up rapidly, and the water holes, stagnant and strongly alkaline, had already poisoned a few sheep. The herders could not understand the sheepwoman's delay in moving to the mountains. I'm running myself ragged over these hills, trying to hold back them yearlings, Bunch declared. Bowers, too, having his own special brand of grief with the buck herd, had looked the interrogation he had not voiced. Kate herself knew that the sheep should have been higher up, away from the ticks and flies, and on good food and water, all of two weeks ago, but on one pretext or another had postponed giving the order to start, though she knew in her heart that the real reason was because Diston had said he was coming again. Now she told herself contemptuously that she was no different from the homesick Nebraskan, and having made up her mind, lost no time in giving each herder his instructions as to when and where to move his sheep. Kate never paid wages for anything that she could do herself, so the morning after her decision to start for the mountains, she was in the saddle and leading two workhorses on the way to move Olson's and Bower's camps before the sun was up. The two sheep wagons were a considerable distance apart, and the road over the broken country to the spot where Kate wished Olson to make his first camp was a rough one. Therefore, it was late in the afternoon when Kate reached Bowers's camp, too late to pull the wagon toward the mountains that night. She pulled the harness from the tired horses, slipped on their nose bags with their allowance of oats, and when they had finished, hobbled and turned them loose to graze in the wide gulch where the wagons stood. Then she warmed up a few pieces of fried mutton, and this, with a piece of baking powder bread and a cup of water from the rivulet that trickled through the gulch, constituted her frugal supper. While driving the sheep wagon, it had required all her attention to throw the brake to keep the wagon off the horse's heels and release it as quickly to select the best of a precarious road and maintain the wagon's equilibrium. But immediately the strain was over and her mind free to ramble, her thoughts reverted at once to Diston, in spite of her efforts to direct them elsewhere. Activity is the recognized panacea for a heavy heart and efficacious while it lasts. But with a lull, it makes itself felt like the return of pain through a dying opiate. And so it was with Kate, as she lay wide-eyed on the bunk tonight, with both the door and window open, while a warm wind, faintly scented 
with the wild peas that purpled the side of the gulch, blew across her face. The rivulet gurgled under the overhanging willows and alder brush. A belated killdeer broke the night stillness with its cry. The hobbles clanked as the horses thumped their forefeet in working their way slowly to the top of the gulch. Bowers fired his evening salute before retiring as a hint to the coyotes, and sometimes when the wind veered, a far-off tinkle as a bell-sheep stirred on the bed-ground came to Kate's ears. All were familiar sounds, so familiar that she heard them only subconsciously. In the same way she saw the dark outlines of objects inside the sheep-wagon, the turkey-wing duster thrust between an oak bow and the canvas, the outlines of the coffee-pot on the stove, the cherished frying-pans dangling on their nails, her rifle standing on the bench within reach. So far as she knew, she and Bowers were the only human beings within miles, and yet she felt no fear. Being alone in the sheep-wagon in the dusk of the gulch held no new sensation for her. She was thinking of Diston as the door of the wagon swung gently to and fro, rattling the frying-pan which hung on a nail on the lower half of it. Of her brusque and ungracious reply when he had told her that he was coming again to see her. Of the sorry figure she had cut beside the girl he had brought, and at her fierce resentment at the girl's covert ridicule. She had shocked and disgusted Diston beyond doubt by the manner in which she had retaliated. Yet she knew that in similar circumstances she would do the same again, for her first impulse nowadays was to strike back harder than she was struck. It seemed, she reflected, as though everything about her, her disposition, her history, her environment and work, forbade any of the pleasant episodes which the average woman accepted as a matter of course ever happening in her life. To be an object of ridicule, the target of somebody's wit, appeared to her a lot. At odds with humanity, engaged almost constantly in combating the handicaps imposed by nature, the serenity of the normal woman's life was not for her. Anyway, one thing was certain. Her poor little romance, builded upon so slight a foundation as an impulsive boy's ephemeral interest, was over. He would not come again, and she cared. She put her hand to her throat. It ached with a lump in it. Yes, she cared. The tears slipped down and wet the flour-sack pillowcase. The outlines of the coffee-pot on the stove and the frying-pan dangling on the door grew blurred. Her eyes were still swimming when she suddenly held her breath. An unfamiliar sound had caught her ear a sound like a stealthy footstep. In the instant that she waited to be sure, a hand and forearm reached inside the door and laid something on the floor. "'Who's there?' There was no response to the imperative interrogation. With the same movement that she swung her feet over the edge of the bed, she reached for her rifle and ran to the door. There was not a sound or sign that was unusual, save that the horses had stopped eating, and with ears thrown forward, were looking down the gulch. She picked up the paper that lay on the floor, struck a match, and read a scrawl by its flare. Warning. 
stop where you are if you ain't looking for trouble. Them range maggots of yourn ain't wanted on the mountain this summer. What did it mean? The match burned to her fingers while she conjectured. Who was objecting? Nefkins? Since there was ample range for both, and each had kept to the boundaries which he tacitly recognized, there had been no dispute. A horse outfit grazing, a small herd of horses during the summer months, and a dry farmer with a couple of milk cows, who, while he plowed and planted and prayed for rain, was incidentally demonstrating the exact length of time that a human being could live on jackrabbit and navy beans, were the only other users of the mountain range. Was it the hoax of some local humorist, or an attempt to intimidate and worry her by someone whose enmity she had incurred. Whatever the motive, was it possible that anyone knew her so little as to believe they could frighten her in any such manner? Her lips curled as she asked herself the question. She had imagined that she had at least proved her courage. Bowers, she knew, would stand by her. The others, perhaps, would use the familiar argument that it cost too much for repairs to be shot up for $45 a month. Finally, she tossed the note on the sideboard and stepped out on the wagon tongue. The stars glimmered overhead, and the shadows lay black and mysterious in the gulch. But she felt no fear as she stood there straight and soldier-like, her eyes sparkling defiance. She had, rather, a feeling of gratitude for the diversion a hope that the threatened trouble might act as a kind of counter-irritant to the dull ache of her heavy heart. End of chapter 18 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas